Welcome back to It Gets Progressively Worse. I'm your host, Kyle, and today I'm joined by Brendan Black, the host of the Talk Ag to Me podcast. How are you doing today, Brendan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Of course, of course. Um, now, you are an agricultural specialist, is what Brand- Brandon tells me. So uh, do you want to go into um, your credentials, how you, why you could consider yourself a specialist or expert in this topic? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I have been uh, surrounded by the agriculture industry for most of my life. Uh, I was born and raised in Tulare, California, so I'm, I'm smack dab in the middle of the Central Valley. Uh, and so I essentially was raised around dairy cattle and corn and just a very agricultural community. I was very, raised in a very small town uh, and I never really had much interest in agriculture growing up. It wasn't something that I saw as a uh, long term career field for me, but uh, upon entering high school, I got involved in a uh, high school program called FFA, or Future Farmers of America, for those of you who may have heard of that. Um, and in that program, I got exposed to just a, a variety of opportunities that were available in agriculture. So I was involved in public speaking teams. I was involved in officer positions to the point where I was uh, practicing leadership. I learned some job interview skills, some resume building skills. And on top of all of that, I got to work hands-on with uh, livestock, with crops, and with different types of agricultural equipment. So I got very comfortable with the industry at a very young age. Uh, and after that, I kind of just had this this realization that you know agriculture was going to be my passion, uh, and so I, I pursued that from the uh, not so much the production side of things. So I'm, I'm not as specialized in terms of um, you know working on the operations. I have worked on a variety of different agricultural operations. I've worked on beef ranches, dairies, different crop op- uh, operations. Uh, so I have experience in those areas, but that's not where my uh, expertise particularly lies. Um, I focus more on the agricultural education and literacy fronts. So I mostly focus on uh, public education, on high school education. I'm uh, going, I'm actually a graduate student right now getting my master's, but I'm going to be a high school agriculture teacher very soon, uh, in about a year or so. And my master's research is in agricultural literacy, focusing on the uh, the general public's understanding and general perception of agricultural topics and issues. And, okay, so I'd say that makes you fairly qualified from all that I just heard. Um, so my, I'm going to throw you a softball at first. Why is and how important is agriculture to our society? Why, why should people try to be more literate in it? You know, that is uh, the golden question, essentially. And that's, that's kind of the whole uh, purpose of what my podcast is, is attempting to address is uh, in, I would like to say in my humble opinion, but, but honestly, from, from everything that I've read and everything that I've researched and, and from everything that I've seen throughout history, uh, agriculture has remained a foundational aspect of pretty much every society that's ever existed. Uh, the first society that was ever established was actually established because the hunters and gatherers, the nomads, uh, realized that they could settle down and, and stay in one place if they could grow their own food instead of having to scavenge for it. And so agriculture was literally the reason why the first civilization was ever started in the first place. Um, and ever since then, every civilization that has uh, grown out of that has grown because of their ability to grow food in different areas. And so uh, you, you'll see throughout history, some of the largest empires, some of the most powerful societies have fallen because they neglected their agriculture. That was usually one of the first things to go before things started going south. 
Um, like if we look at the you know, American Civil War, for example, the reason uh, why the South started to lose so quickly is because the North cut off and burned a lot of their farms. Um, you know, we, we see throughout history that there's this recurring theme of prioritization of agriculture means a successful society in most cases. And so, <clears throat> and so the reason why I think agriculture is most important to society is not only is it foundational, but it is uh, it's connected to everything. Really, there's uh, in the agricultural community, we have this kind of um, it's it's a small Facebook group that has expanded into a larger uh, organization of sorts. It's called My Job Depends on Ag. Um, and one of the mottos that they live by is that every job depends on ag because every life depends on ag. Uh, I mean, essentially going more than just the, well, yeah, we grow your food, so obviously you depend on us uh, side of things. That's a little bit too easy. Agriculture is a lot more than just growing food. It's growing fiber for clothing. It's, you know, mining, natural resource gathering, lumber, all of that's incorporated into, into agriculture. And for looking outside, just the production side of things, agricultural sciences, technology, uh, lobbying, a lot of the laws and regulations that are put into place are often oriented around the agriculture industry and are influenced by it. Um, a lot of the technology that is used in the in at least the United States, the other countries are a little bit different, but in the United States, a lot of the most advanced technology that uh, we get, basically the chain of command is the military gets the highest level of advanced technology and then agriculture and then everybody else. So they have self-driving tractors, they have robots, they have autonomous uh, drones that can spray fields and detect uh, where, where insects are, where water content is, where uh, there's higher uh, density of, of moisture. There's all kinds of different uh, precision ag type technology that's coming out now. So it's it's not just food production anymore. Now everything is, find, is finding its way uh, to kind of be intertwined because of our food and fiber production system. So that's, that's why I would say that being aware of agriculture is so important because people don't often realize that your purchasing decisions, your voting decisions, just the way that you live your life influences the agriculture industry just as much as those farmers and producers influence your life. Wow, okay. Well, from what <laughs> I got from that, it's, it sounds like we just need to find a way to get agriculture ahead of the military, you know, give them the best technology. <laughs> you know, I that mean, would be... That would be great if we could do that. I, I'm not sure that they're going to take that very very kindly, but I think well, that would be awesome. Know. I mean, it's like, and and that's something you learn. I mean, you learn from you know, even middle school all the way up. You know, they talk about like geography and geographical determinism. Mm. All civilizations are founded on rivers until maybe even till the modern day now. So it's like it it, it is just it's crazy how something like that can really affect. Um, uh, I mean, not effect. It's crazy how something you wouldn't really necessarily always think about has that great of an effect on our society. Yeah, and and to your point, even you, know, you mentioned that a lot of civilizations are founded on the basis of, of waterfronts, uh, like like rivers, for example. It, we discovered very early as a society that soil is one of the most valuable things that could ever exist, and that we need to protect soil and take care of soil if we want to have a productive society. And the first, like I mentioned, the first civilization, the first farmers um, realized this and they built their first civilization close to water because they realized that not only can they use the water for irrigation, but that water also it plays a huge role in the life and, and sustainability of soil. Even today in, in the valley that I live in, the Central Valley of California, it used to be a giant lake, a giant river, uh, and lots of water bodies used to run throughout where I live. And they don't anymore because the settlers realized that if you farm on the bottom of a 
former waterbed, the soil is so much more fertile. It's got so much more life in it, and it's so much more productive. And it's it's to, it's the reason why the area of California that I live in is considered one of the most agriculturally productive uh, lands, one of the most fertile soils in the entire world. And I mean, you're talk, we're talking about California. Let's let's go into it. there is a problem over in the Southwest right now about the loss of water. Do you want to talk about how like the draining of the Colorado and Lake Mead, how that might affect agriculture in the Southwest of America, maybe even the world? Yeah. So water is a recurring theme in, in agricultural production and agricultural issues. Um, as I'm sure you and, and all of your uh, listeners are aware of, California is, is no, uh, no stranger to water shortages and, and to drought. Um, and it's, it's something that is often talked about as kind of like, yeah, that, that sucks kind of situation, but people don't realize typically how massive of an impact that, that has. Uh, like we've, we've had entire crops go out of production because we don't, we're not able to produce them with, with lack of water that we have. Um, and not to make this all about California, but uh, it's, it's one of those things that in agriculture, there are kind of three major issues that will always kind of be issues. And, uh, you know, one of them is regulation, one of them is labor, and the other one is uh, water. Water is always going to be a major issue everywhere you go. And so in, in the case of those specific instances, like, you know, like you mentioned, like the Colorado River drying up and, and, all, and all those different waterfronts starting to dry up, we're seeing weird fluctuations of, of, of drought throughout the country right now. Like I, I actually just uh, got back from Washington. I was up there for a, a conference. I was speaking uh, to the American Farm Bureau um, Promotion and Education Committee about kind of a similar topic, actually. And I learned that Washington is going through a pretty bad drought right now, um, which I never in a million years thought that the rainy state would get a water shortage, but it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's happening. And at the same time, California is getting more water than it's ever gotten in, in the past hundred years or, or so combined. You know, we, we're just getting insane amounts of water over here. It's weird to see other states that are starting to not get that same luxury. Um, and so why that's happening is difficult to say. The impact that it's going to have is is even harder to say. I would I would wager to say that a lot of the agricultural production along those waterfronts, like like the Colorado River and and some of those other areas in the Southwest, are definitely going to be hurting because I know that in a lot of southern areas, at least in the coastal parts of the southern southern areas, they grow very water reliant crops. So these are not crops that are drought resistant like what we grow here in the valley. They are very uh, they, they need a lot of water to maintain their production, uh, production yields and production value. And so th- there's potential for there to be long-term ramifications in terms of food shortages, potential food uh, price increases, which we've been seeing with some crops here and there throughout the valley and throughout uh, really the whole country. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I don't know, I don't know what exactly that's going to look like yet. Yeah, we, we, haven't, we haven't gotten a whole lot of information about what, that's, what, what impact that's had so far, so it's hard to say where it's going to go. So, and we'll probably go back to the food shortages topic on another question I have later, but for right now, what do you think the solutions that uh, we can put forward to try to preserve water um, in areas like the Southwest or um, other areas that are going through droughts? How can we rectify that or make sure that we don't run out of water in these areas? Yeah, so the water uh, preservation issue is one that's, it's, it's a bit contentious. It's one that in, uh, in my area is kind of a hot topic. Um, one of the largest uh, one of the largest things that we often advocate for is more effective water short, uh, storage. So uh, again, at, at least in in California, um, there has excuse me in California there hasn't been a uh, major water storage infrastructure built in the past. Uh, it's been about since the 1960s. I think was the last time a major dam or reservoir was built, um, and so. 
trying to get more water infrastructure is kind of the, the big name of the game right now. Trying to get more dams, more reservoirs, uh, more water storage is, is the, the big priority because the really a lot, a lot of the issue is, uh, at least in, in a lot of those major drought areas, it's not so much that we're not getting enough water because we can, we can, make, we can make do with the water that we're getting. It's just that we're not holding on to that water. A lot of it's being run off. A lot of it's being allocated to different areas that it, it really isn't needed in. Uh, and so it's it's not so much that there's a water shortage, it's just a, a water misusage is kind of a better way of putting it, if you ask me. And I think that that works really well for certain heavily affected drought areas. It may not work for everybody. Like for Washington, for example, I think that their, their water storage is probably fine. I don't know much about their water storage situation up there, so it's hard to say uh, what would benefit them. In the Southwest, I think it's probably a similar case. I think that their water storage uh, may be need, in, in need of improvement, at least in the uh, southern parts of California, it definitely is. Um, in, in, in some more of those, like, kind of uh, outside of California border states, it's, it's hard to say what, uh, what would be a great solution. I think that the, the water allocation is definitely uh, one, one of the biggest things that we're looking into. However, there are certain times that the environment fluctuates and that we can't control it, and unfortunately, we kind of just have to go with the flow. And so maybe the answer is not so much how do we get more water, it's how do we deal with having less water. Um, and that usually comes from more advanced forms of irrigation technology. It usually comes from using genetically modified crops that are more drought resistant, so they require less water input to be able to produce the same level of yield. Uh, there's a lot of different farming practices like regenerative agricultural practices that are being used right now um, that use groundwater more effectively, so it's not wasting groundwater. Uh, so I think that the adaption, the adaptation of practices is going to be the natural solution. Um, but in terms of long-term solutions, I think infrastructure is probably going to be one of our best bets. And I think that really, I mean, infrastructure, not just for agriculture, but for most things would probably be a great solution. Um, let's use that as a transition over to um, climate change and global warming and all of that. Um, I don't know where you stand on that issue, but um, just... Uh, would you like to give your, I mean, you said you were very open to be transparent. Do you have any um, opinions on green transition, moving over to renewable energy rather than, uh, and how that will affect the agriculture industry? Sure. Yeah. Um, being, a, being an industry that relies heavily on the environment, there's obviously a conversation to be had about the impact that agriculture has on the environment and vice versa. Uh, since the beginning of time, farmers and people involved in agriculture have had this very interesting relationship with the environment as it has changed. Uh, so to, to give my, my transparent view on, on this whole thing, um, you know, I, I acknowledge that there's definitely going to be uh, long-term impacts on the environment from a lot of the practices that we're using today, not just in agriculture, but in all of our industries. Uh, there are definitely things that we are not uh, doing that we should be doing to take better care of our environment. Um, I don't think it's necessarily to the severity that it's often broadcasted to be. I think that it's it's not quite as the world's going to end tomorrow as, as it's often broadcasted to be, but there's definitely need for change. And so that's kind of, that's where I stand on the whole thing. Um, I'm not to say, a, a, you know, on the fencer about it, but it's one of those things that's like, I, I can hear arguments both ways. I think that there's a lot to be said about the fact that we do need to take care, big, take better care of our environment. But at the same time, I think that we often give a lot more attention to the environment than we do other things that definitely need our attention more at the moment. Um, and water is a perfect example of that. We had uh, a big debate here in California for a long time, and we're still kind of having that debate about 
uh, how much water gets allocated toward, towards the environment versus towards uh, agriculture and towards the urban development. Um, because in past years, it's been about 50% of California's water goes to the environment, uh, 40% goes to ag, 10% goes to the urban uh, urban development. Now it's shifting. It's a little bit closer to like 60 towards environment now, uh, probably about 30 to 25 to ag, and then the rest goes to the uh, urban sprawl. And so it's, it's one of those things that's like... Uh, I think that we in agriculture have a, a very important role in environmental uh, preservation and environmental protection and, and care, uh, but it's it's not as simple as we need to drop everything we're doing and switch over to green energy and we need to switch over to all these renewable methods of uh, and sustainable methods of agriculture. One of my one of my least favorite words in the world is sustainable. I, I can't stand the word sustainable because it's so ill-defined. Um, People say all the time, we need to be more sustainable. We need to be, you know, moving towards sustainable practices. Okay, well, what do you mean by sustainable? You know, if we're talking environmentally sustainable, that means a few different things. If we're talking sustainable in terms of an economic, uh, you know, we're looking at industry here, so there needs to be an economic component as well. If we're looking at it, sustainability from the economic point of view, that's a very different thing than a sustainability from the food supply chain point of view, from the food, uh, just the food supply period point of view, from the, you know, there's, there's a lot of different meanings to that word. And there's a lot of different meanings to the conversation surrounding that word. And so I I don't, I don't like when people use it just willy nilly, unless they're very specific about what they mean in terms of sustainability and environmental uh, consciousness. But we are seeing in agriculture, some changes and shifts towards technology that is a lot more technology and practices that are a lot more environmentally conscious, which I, I think is ultimately a good thing. I think that that is beneficial because as I mentioned, soil is something that we've uh, just recently figured out is important again. Like the earliest society knew that it was huge and we kind of just neglected that for centuries. And then now we're starting to realize that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be destroying our soil anymore. That's kind of, we kind of need that stuff. Uh, So for the last like hundred years or so, we've just been just bleeding the soil dry we have not been taking care of it and it's not to say that all farmers have been doing that because most farmers are pretty good but there's been enough that have been causing damage that it's become an issue uh to the point now where we're finding uh, new methods like regenerative agriculture is a term that gets thrown around thrown around a lot it's this idea that uh, the soil kind of takes care of the crop and the crop takes care of the soil and the farmer takes care of both of them uh so there's this a lot of uh, like minimal tillage, there's a lot of replanting things for the sake of regenerating soil nutrient density, not just for the sake of profit or, or cash crops. Um, so th- those methods are being tried now to see if there's any environmental impact. We're starting to see if we can use cattle to actually restore land that has been turned into desert, and uh, through their grazing patterns and through their um, through their migration patterns, we can actually see grass starting to pop back up in some of those areas that have been turned into deserts. Um, so we, we've learned very quickly that agriculture can do just as much, if not more, good for the environment than it can uh, damage to the environment. And so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm on the fence about it when people say, well, yeah, all, you know, agriculture is, is the leading cause of environmental damage. It's like, yeah, but not really. And you, it, it's easy to say that because cows exist and cows produce just a ton of methane. But at the same time, they also uh, do just as much good for the environment as they do bad and and you know the same could be said for the crop industry you know like we you you know the best way to get carbon out of the atmosphere right it's you grab carbon from the atmosphere using crops and put it back into soil the crops are natural eaters of carbon that's how they photosynthesize that's how they create oxygen so if we have more crops on the on the ground if we have more trees if we have more plants 
and those plants are, are uh, selectively bred and genetically engineered to be even, even more uh, powerful at, at that process, then they can sequester carbon out of the atmosphere, regenerate the soil uh, microbiomes with it, and it just overall benefits the entire environmental system that way. So there's, there's a lot of like symbiotic relationship between agriculture and the environment. I often say that it kind of serves as the bridge between nature and, and society. Um, but that's a, you getting a little bit too poetic at that point. But yeah, like I said, there's, there's a lot of complexity when it comes to the environmental issue. I think to kind of go back to your question about the whole green energy and green trans, uh, transition and everything, we're starting to see that a bit. Like we have a, a dairy technology called the methane digester, which basically takes all the methane that cows produce and turns it into green renewable energy that can be used on the farm. Uh, so that kind of stuff is being played with. But overall, I think that it's one of those things that we're, we're making a big fuss over, but there's a lot more good being done than people like to admit. And so to your point, you, you're saying that cows, you know, while, while they can be very harmful, but they can also be very good. Um, when they're in factory farms, are they able to do as much good? Or is it like, you know, is that one of the things that needs to be changed in order to kind of rehabilitate the image of cows? Because, you know, when you hear about factory farms, you hear that they're some of the biggest producers of methane into the atmosphere. And it's not like the cows are contributing much because they're just sitting in a warehouse. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm... I'm... But before I answer that, I, I am a little bit curious. Uh, w when you say factory farm, could you kind of describe to me what that what, what that image looks like in your head? Yeah. So when I think factory farm, I think of like the 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 movies that they show us in our in like our environmental classes or just in general in those PSAs, where it's cows, you know, um, shoulder to shoulder in these pens, eating out of a trough, getting as fat as possible, not leaving this warehouse, um, you know, being pumped full of um, different chemicals and not, you know, living in a natural environment. I mean, I, I'm not talking, when I say factory farms, I'm not talking about farms that just produce a lot. I'm talking about farms that limit the cow's ability to um, be animals and just make them sit just to be harvested. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that's a term. And there's a, there's a reason I ask you that. That's a term that also gets brought up a lot that people also don't tend to define uh, very well. I think that you know, the, the way you described it is, is, is a good way of, of describing it how I think most people tend to see it. Um, typically, when people think of factory farms, I think that, that that is where their brain goes. However, the, the fact of the matter is um, factory farms really are not they're not quite as cold and mechanical as they seem to come across because if, if you ask a farmer what a factory farm is, he, he probably couldn't tell you. Factory farms are not really a term that we use much in the industry. Uh, you have large operations, you have small operations. Um, and, you know, you typically when you think of factory farm, you have like this massive corporate farm that's owned by like McDonald's or it's owned by, you know, JBS beef or it's owned by, you know, some of these larger corporations. Um, oftentimes those corporations are not the owners of the farms. They may be a client of the farm and the farm sells to that provider. Uh, so it's not so much like the massive corporatized, you know, warehouse where cows are being strapped to a machine and just milk and uh, like they eat milk and that's all they do all day. It, it's, it's often the case that you see maybe with like some industries like poultry can look a little bit more like that, but with larger livestock like cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, um, it, it's really difficult to maintain those types of, uh, 
those types of operations that way. Um, so even if we were trying to do that, it doesn't it doesn't really last all that long because it's it's really not productively sound. Plus, if if cattle are stressed out, then they produce less. If all animals are stressed out, then they produce less and they produce lower quality. Uh, so that's taken a lot out of the the farmer's pocket at that point. So it, it's really not in the best interest to maintain factory farms. So when you and I'm not, you know, calling you out by any means uh, in, no, no, no. in, in I, saying I'm this. I'm informed. Educate me, please. <laughs> yeah, it, when when you say factory farms, there's kind of like this this idea that it's, you know, that, like there's not a family owning this farm. It's not like a mom and pa kind of situation. Uh, really, about and I need to check the number again because I I always forget what it is. But it, it's about 98 percent, I believe. 98 percent of farms in the United States are actually family owned. Um, they may be of large size, but they're still family owned. Um, and they're, they're usually ran very similarly to how you would see a small farm ran. They're just ran on a larger scale. Um, and that's kind of the, one of the big differences is you have a, a, you know, a small farm versus large farm conversation. Uh, people don't like large farms because they think the larger the farm, the less you care about your animals and the less you care about, you know, your, your production. Really the opposite tends to be the case. Like maybe you have a bit more of an intimate relationship with your animals and with your crops whenever you're a small farmer. But when you're a large farmer, you have a much larger responsibility because as as a farm grows in size, it grows in customer basis too. It's it's exporting foods to different countries. It's having to uphold larger standards. The USDA is a lot more uh, hard on them with regulations and with uh, inspections to make sure they're following protocol. So there's there's almost more of a responsibility for larger farmers to be more uh, careful and and more um, more uh, what's what I'm looking for. They take better care of, of their. Uh, operations and, and if that makes any sense can there be farms that slip through the cracks definitely there there are farms out there who do not practice uh, you know ethical and and safe uh, you know op, uh, operation practices and for those when they do pop up I always am, am one of the first people to say like that that's not okay we need to we need to get rid of that that's making the rest of the industry look bad but more often than not that's not that's not really the case um, and so when when we're talking about, I'm, I'm trying to get back to the to the point, the root of your question, which I um, I'm starting to ramble a little bit now. But when we're talking about the environmental impact of cattle that are raised in what we call CAFOs, which is kind of close to what you would consider a factory farm, so CAFOs are confined animal feeding operations, um, as opposed to AFOs, which are animal feeding operations, not non-confined. Um, CAFOs are specifically oriented around having cattle in uh, contained units, not like a warehouse so much as like a freestall barn, uh, which is a open barn that has a uh, shade covering over it, but all the fences are open, all the walls are open so that way the cows can breathe, that way they can move around. Uh, they have full access to beds they can lay on, they can stand up and go eat whenever they want, they can go back go back and lay down, they can move up and down the hall as much as they want. It gets flushed out every couple hours or so to make sure it stays clean so that way they're not laying in their own um, uh, waste. And so there's a lot of a lot of people see those types of operations and kind of associate those with factory farms because they look more confined than like a, you know, a pasture where they're grazing. But the the difficult part with, with grazing is that there's so little land to allow cattle to graze anymore that it's, it, you know, if we're going to maintain the same production level that we need to for a lot of the products that we're producing, you kind of have to make some trades and keep them in. Sometimes you have to keep them in, you know, in stalls and in barns. Um, that's not to say that that's where they spend their entire life. A lot of the time they do get to get out and, you know, get some level of, of free movement, you know, throughout their life. Um, 
I know I'm, I'm not explaining this very well, but essentially the, the point I'm trying to get across is that the, the cows in confined animal feeding operations have as much freedom of movement as those who are out in the pasture. It's just a different area. Like they're not eating grass off the ground. They're eating grass in front of their pen um, and they go out and they eat it and they come back and take a nap and they get up and, you know, go eat again. And then it's time to go milk. So they go milk and then they come back and lay down again. Uh, so there's a lot more freedom than, than is often portrayed, um, which I know is not at all what you were asking, but that's, I think, an important point to get across. In terms of the environment. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I, I feel a little educated now. Yeah. And like I said, I, I don't say that to be like a, well, actually, this is how it is, you know, but it's when that is a term that gets thrown around a lot, it's very important, it, it, in my opinion, to have it defined clearly because I want to know what people are referring to. Like, you know, if you're referring to those that are, you know, large and corporate and that are not following the rules, then yeah, absolutely. Let's call those guys out. We need to fix that. But that's also like, probably less than 1% of all farmers. So it's not to say that it's not an issue because it's small, but it's not as much of an issue as, as it is portrayed to be, if that makes any sense. And, and, that's, a, and this is, that's a good conversation to have then because, you know, I had the impression that um, just through the classes or, uh, you know, exposure on social media, that that, that was the norm. So it, it's good to hear that it's not. Um, and... That, you know, we can use that as a segue. I feel like I've used your responses as a segue to go into each question. But uh, you could use that as a segue of how do we better educate? You said your focus is not, but one of your focuses is education. How do we teach young people or how do we teach old people how agriculture um, affects us? How can we get these messages out? You know, that is probably my, my favorite question to answer. Um, it's it's a very difficult question for me to answer because I have so many ideas and so little time. But essentially what we're doing right now is, in my opinion, one of the best first steps. Um, I, I believe that engaging in, in, in conversations like this are really important. I think that asking questions, excuse me, I think that asking questions are, is super important. I think that just being open to being curious and asking, uh, you know, asking questions about things you don't understand or asking questions about things that maybe you've heard are one way, but you might believe are a little bit of a different way. Um, or maybe it's just something that you're like, you know what, I've, I've been told this my entire life. Is this true? You know, and just seeing what, the, what they say. I think engaging in conversation between those who come from agricultural backgrounds and those who don't is, is a very important first step. Um, for a long time in the agriculture industry, we have blamed those outside of agriculture uh, for not understanding what's going on in the industry. Um, and we very just recently come to the conclusion that that's kind of a stupid idea. It's, it's really hard to blame people who don't come from ag because they don't really have a reason to go learn about it because it's not, it's not really taught in school. It's not something that is, you know, even though it impacts your life, you're not surrounded by it constantly. Um, so there's not really much incentive to go and, and do research on that kind of stuff unless you are directly interested in it. Um, and so I, a big part of my mission and a big part of my, my goal with my podcast and with my master's research has been kind of trying to find new ways of, of connecting with consumers. And, and I say consumers to, to refer to kind of like the non-agricultural general public. Um, there's not really a great way to describe that population without kind of sounding condescending. So I'm trying to not do that. Um, but the my ultimate goal is to communicate with both that public and with the agricultural uh, general population and make them both come to an agreement that they can sit at the same table and have conversations and talk to each other and ask questions of each other, uh, not just like 
we're here to educate you, but more so you're here to educate us too. You know, what, what are things that we're not aware of that we need to be doing better in our industry? You know, what, what are things that we um, are maybe not aware of in terms of what consumers want and what consumers are interested in? There's been this idea for so long that people outside of agriculture don't care about the industry, that they're very against farmers, that farmers are bad, that you know we're the enemy, all this kind of stuff. And I think that that gets kind of escalated because of what we see on social media. But in my experience, most people actually tend to trust farmers, you know, and, and maybe they don't trust every farmer, which I can't blame them. There's farmers I don't like either. But they generally understand and, and, and appreciate the food that is on their plate. They trust where it came from. They trust that it's safe. Um, and that they're more often not willing to help out with the agriculture industry if they just know how to help and where to go for that help. Um, so long story short, I, I tend to be lo very long-winded, so I'm going to try to not ramble again, but essentially just keep having conversations. You know, it, it, if, if you are interested, go look for ag podcasts, go look for ag YouTube channels. Like we have ag influencers out there trying to spread the good word of agriculture. Um, you know, go do some research. I, I always encourage people to do research, and if something doesn't make sense, find somebody that's willing to answer the question for them. Uh, that's what I try to serve as, as kind of a mediator. But I, I describe my podcast and myself as a bridge of connection between the agricultural industry and the general public. And I, I hope that more people start to do that because we need more of those kind of people because there's so many misconceptions and there's so much confusion and there's so much distrust here and there that could be mitigated if somebody would just sit down for you know an hour and just talk to some people and answer some questions and have a good conversation and not be condescending about it and not try to educate them but try to learn and try to grow with them it there's no one size fits all solution it's just going to come down to a lot of little things and it's going to come down to us as an industry and the general public and just the entire american public coming to the agreement that this is something that needs to be learned something that needs to be taught and that we need to prioritize this more all right, and on that note, if our viewers want to keep listening to these conversations and keep um, not keep uh, become more informed on this topic, where can they find you? Yeah, so uh, my podcast once again is called Talk Ag to Me. Uh, you know, talk as in talk A G T O M E, uh, and I'm anywhere you can find podcasts. Um, I'm on all social media platforms except Threads. I haven't made a Threads yet. I don't know. If, are you on Threads? We are. We're not on Threads yet. Um, I don't think we have enough people to go on threads so yeah we're, we're not quite there yet either but uh yeah so that most of the main social media is instagram twitter facebook <clears throat> facebook youtube uh tiktok um and then yeah any any of your preferred podcasting platforms if we're not there reach out and i will make sure that we get there uh but yeah and it's and, and uh, my name is brendan black um you're welcome to find my personal stuff i don't you know it doesn't make much of a difference to me but if you want to uh, reach out and be on an episode if you're curious if you have questions if it's just you, you hear something that i say or you hear something that somebody else in agriculture says and it doesn't make sense shoot me a dm email me text me whatever just say hey i i heard about this is this true you know and, and we can we can talk about that um i'm always open to conversation i'm always open to uh learning more about other people and, and their backgrounds as well so um but yeah that's that's where you guys can find me thank you so much um yeah and thanks. It's, been, it's been great talking to you um yeah We'll make sure if we have any agricultural um, confusions or just questions to reach out back to you. Hopefully we can get you on again at some point. Um, yeah, definitely. In that case, um, for all the listeners, thank you for listening. Make sure to go check out Brendan and all the places he just mentioned. Um, and we will catch you next time.